Well, church, I took some liberties and decided that what would have been one sermon is now going to be two. I'm not going to just do one really long one. I was going to do thy kingdom come, thy will be done in one sermon. I could not do this in one sermon and feel like I was doing it justice because I felt like if I covered it in one sermon, I was going to actually raise more questions than I was going to answer. And, uh, and I didn't want to do that. Um, and so we're going to deal with our kingdom come today. We're going to look at the will of God as it relates to prayer next week. And, um, and these are two very important topics. Um, one of them you're probably a little more interested in than the other one because you always want to know what's God's will for your life, and that's literally what we're going to talk about next week. I'm going to tell you God's will for your life next week, those who you want to know. Um, but honestly, when it comes to the kingdom of God, I know we don't think as much about this as we should, but it's such a vast subject in Scripture, we could take a very, very long time just focusing on the kingdom of God. And we're not going to cover it all today. We're not even going to get close. This is more like an introduction to the kingdom, and if you want to study more, just go read the book of Matthew, right? I mean, that's the whole book of Matthew is about the kingdom. Um, in fact, I, 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 let's put it this way. Back in September, back in September, um, Lisa and I, Aaron, Aaron and Keely got married in, in uh, Italy in the, the Dolomites, which is the, the, the Italy side of the Swiss Alps. Have y'all seen the, the uh, movie uh, uh, Sound of Music? So at the end, when they're trying to cross the Swiss Alps to get away from Austria, they're actually trying to get to the Dolomites. That's where they were headed, and that's where they got married. We had to, I know I've said this before, but I'm going to keep saying it, uh, because they made me climb a mountain to get to the place they were going to marry. So we had to hike a mountain to get there. It was, it was fantastic. It was great. Anyway, after the wedding, Lisa and I went and did our thing. They went and, you know, started doing all their honeymoon trips and stuff. And five or six days later, Lisa and I went to Florence. Five or six days later, we met Aaron and Keeley back in Rome. And, and so um, we were like, hey, let's get together, go grab dinner. We'll swap stories of everything that's been happening, everything we've seen over the last several days. And, and so Aaron, had to, he said, Dad, there's a, there's a restaurant that I've really been wanting to try in Rome. It's got great ratings. Everybody says this is a place to go, but it's like a 30-minute Uber from from where we were staying in Rome. I was like, right, let's do it. So we hop in this Uber, and the guy that picked us up's name is Giuseppe. And so, and uh, Giuseppe did not speak any English, which was a little odd for, for uh, cab drivers in Rome. And I, when I mean any, I mean zero. I spoke more Italian than he spoke English, and that's pretty sad. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, because I don't speak Italian. Um, so the four of us hop in this car. We're swapping stories. I'm in the front passenger seat in the car. Lisa and Aaron and Keeler in the back seat. And I happened to kind of pick up on the fact this guy was driving a little extra crazy for a Rome cab driver, which are already kind of up, you know, levels. If you've driven with cab drivers in any major city, y'all know what that's like. And, but we're talking. I'm, you know, I'm like, well, that was close, but whatever. I'm not thinking that much of it, but. Then I kind of get to looking around, and I'm really looking out the windows, and this dude's like changing lanes and cutting cars off and, and driving about 60 right up to the bumpers of these buses doing like 30, and I am kid you not, stopping like this far from the bumpers, and slamming on brakes and 
zooming into different lanes, like when he would come up on cars, and instead of just kind of easing over, it was like, there's a car, and instead of just kind of doing this, he'd go like, this kind of thing. It was just, and it, so it got erratic enough where I'm, I'm starting to wonder what's going on. And at first, I'm thinking, man, this guy is a really bad driver. How far are we away? Should I have him put us out and get, a different, get in a different car? I mean, that's, that's where he had gotten to. But then, I thought, but then I noticed something with Giuseppe. Now, we're at this point only about seven or eight blocks from the hotel, so I'm like, well, we, we survived this long. He survived this long. We'll hopefully make it seven or eight blocks. But then I noticed there were two guys. We're headed down the street. There's two guys standing in the street. They're going to kind of jaywalk across the street. No big deal. But I noticed Giuseppe headed towards those guys at about 45 miles an hour in a street that should have been doing about 20. And about from me to that back wall is when he veered around them and got close enough to them where I'm surprised he didn't clip one of them with this mirror. And at that point, I'm not paying attention to what's going on. I turn and I start watching Giuseppe. And when I did that, I realized... It hit me. I was so busy watching the insanity go on around me, and I wasn't paying attention to what was going on with the person that was actually driving. Once I started paying attention, I saw his posture. I saw that he was scrunched over the steering wheel, that he was squinting against the street lights, that he seemed way too slow to react to things that was obvious to everybody else in the car, and that he was using a really, really large font on his phone that was sitting on his dash. Giuseppe's problem wasn't that he couldn't drive, is that he couldn't see. <laughs> and all of this stuff happening around him, all this stuff happening around us, the things he could avoid it easily if he'd have been able to have seen what was happening around him. And once I realized he couldn't see, the entire car ride made sense, and it made me want to get out of the car even more. Thankfully, obviously, we made it to the restaurant. It was great. It was fantastic. I had one of the, uh, it was one of the best, best meals we had while we were there. And when we read the New Testament, I, I, I tell that story because it's funny, and, and, but there is a point to it. When we read the New Testament, I think we get caught up in looking at all the stuff happening around us and end up missing one of the key entire points of the entire New Testament, and that is this, and I'm not exaggerating when I tell you this, the New Testament is about the kingdom of God. The entire New Testament is about the kingdom of God. Some people will tell you, no, it's the New Covenant, the New Testament's about the church. The church is a vital part of the New Testament, but I'm telling you, the New Testament is about the kingdom. Just the phrase kingdom of God is used in the New Testament 162 times. Over 16 books. So over half the books. The concept of the kingdom of God is, depending on how you want to judge it, but we'll go anywhere between 400 and 450 times. Christ himself spoke of it a lot. If you read through the book of Matthew, you can't get away from the kingdom of God. 
The kingdom of God's like, this is some of the examples you see in Scripture. Jesus says it's like a farmer sowing seed, a man hunting treasure, a woman kneading dough, fisherman casting a net, a man forever forgiven a debt, a wedding guest who forgot his jacket, virgins waiting for a bridegroom, a landowner being generous. It's a seed, yeast, a pearl, fish, banquet, vineyards. It's so many different things, it's hard to put it into one thing. One thing is clear. All of these stories about the kingdom are calls for the followers of Christ to pay attention because the kingdom of God has arrived. It's here. That's that's what the New Testament is telling us. And if we're going to pray, thy kingdom come, we need to realize everything that's entailed in that prayer. So let's start at the beginning, and before we do, let's say the prayer together. Maddie, can you pull that slide up for me? Should be the first slide on those sermons. Let's say this together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and power and glory forever. Amen. Amen. Every time I say that prayer in a group, I think about playing football in high school and all of us gathering around seeing how fast we could say the Lord's Prayer. Um, anyway, uh, so let's, let's start at the beginning. The New Testament opens in Matthew 3 with John the Baptist declaring, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 3. And then not long after that, we can read Jesus coming on the scene declaring, this is in Mark 1, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Saying to the Jewish people, listen, what you've been waiting on is here, and it's here in the person of Christ. That's what what Jesus is saying. So the kingdom begins by establishing Jesus as king. That's the, as king of this kingdom. That's actually the entire story of the incarnation. We, we tend to focus on Jesus as savior because that's the part that we like, right? We, we like to think Jesus saved me. Jesus came and he saved me and that's great. I'm glad and I'm not uh, discounting that in any way, shape or form. We don't tend to focus on, the, when we talk about Christmas story, we don't tend to focus on Jesus as king. But so much of the Christmas story is about Jesus as king. In fact, the focus of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah coming are really tied to his kingship more than his being savior. The Messiah is going to come as king. It was the focus of the angels. What did the angels say to the shepherds? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is... Christ, the Lord. Christ, here's a little information if you didn't know that. Christ is not an extra name for Jesus or a nickname for Jesus. It's a title. It means anointed one. And it means Jesus is anointed. He's the Christ. You'll see that all through the Gospels. The Christ. So it's a title like the king, the anointed one. So it's saying that Jesus Christ is the anointed king. 
Christ Jesus, King Jesus. You can, do, you can use those terms interchangeably. The Magi left following a star, and what did it say they were seeking? A king. When Herod ordered the slaughter of every male two years old and under, he wasn't trying to kill a savior. He was trying to kill a king. What did he say to the Magi? Hey, when you find that king, tell me so I can go worship him. Herod wasn't trying to kill a savior. He was trying to kill a king. And in Revelation 5, when the angels declared of Christ, this is what they say, to him who sits on the throne. Who sits on the throne? Kings, right? To the Lamb, blessing, honor, glory, mighty forever. Jesus talked about the kingdom more than anything else in the Gospels. The book of Acts is about the kingdom of God. Decades after the resurrection, Jesus has ascended to heaven. The New Testament writers are still talking about the kingdom of God. And while we don't think as much of it today, the word Christian is about kingdom. We, 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 it's used in Acts for the first time in Acts 11, and it's, it was actually a derogatory term. It was, like a, it was, like, it was like in, in, intended to be a pejorative. It was basically, it was a mocking term saying, you're showing allegiance to a dead man. But there was something you need to consider. All right, this is important. The word Christ has now become completely associated with Jesus Christ, but it's actually not a religious term. It's a political term. So when they started calling someone a Christian, it wasn't about their theology. It was about their allegiance. You, are a, you have allegiance to a dead king, a dead Christ, a dead anointed one. So they were mocking, they were ridiculed for it. For, and, and, and if you look through church history, you'll understand, especially in that first century, they were being mocked for not following the earthly showing allegiance to the earthly rulers of that, that day. But what people didn't know was that Christ's followers would say, hey, you're wrong about one thing. First of all, our king's not dead. And second of all, thank you. We love that term, Christian. It's ours. We didn't, uh, we're embracing it. Yes, we're Christians. We are allegiance. Our allegiance is to Christ. We are Christians. Now, it was actually the reason so many Christians were hated through so much of history, so much of the world. Christians were called heretics. You know why they were called heretics? Because they were monotheists. How about that for your heresy? They were called heretics because they only believed in one God. They only worshipped one God. They were considered rebels, not because they sought to overthrow governments, but because they refused to bow down and worship men who had established themselves as gods. They were hated by political powers. They were hated by powerful people who had motives and agendas in the world because they needed this group, and this group kept messing with everything because they were only loyal to their king. And since the beginning of Jesus coming to earth, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is allegiance to a king. It's, it's about the kingdom. It's who, it's, it's who we are now. As followers of Jesus, we are Christians our loyalty is to King Jesus. So I want to just take a minute, establish Jesus as King. Maddie, throw my Jesus as King slide up there so they can see it. So let's actually look at the kingdom. Turn to Matthew 16. 
I, I don't know about y'all, but my brain's kind of warped in some ways. And a lot of times I find the best way to understand something is to, to consider what it's not. Y'all ever do that? You know, it's this, but it's not this. That helps me. So let's start, let's start there with this. So the first thing I want you to understand about the kingdom is that the church is not the kingdom. All right? Those are two distinct things. It's important. That's a slide, Maddie. Pay attention. I wouldn't normally talk to regular kids like that, but that's my daughter up there. So, um, uh, all right. It's an important distinction. So don't equate the church with the kingdom. Think of it this way. You can't go read through the, through the, the New Testament and go, anytime I see church, I can put the word kingdom, or anytime I see kingdom, I can put the word church. It won't work, right? The kingdom is, of God's not the church. The church is part of the kingdom. The church has a role in the kingdom, but it's not the kingdom. You could think of it like this. In Matthew 16, Christ institutes the church. It's a famous, famous par, uh, story, not parable, story. Uh, he tells Peter, you, you might be familiar with it, says, he's talking to Peter, he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Do you remember what it was that Peter said when he said, I, he said, he said um, who, who do you say I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to that confession, upon this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He was not instituting Peter as the first pope. I don't even know how in the world that came about, where that theology comes from. It's just flat dead wrong. All right? You in that, this is, and then this is what he says to Peter. This is important. He said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You... It's not Peter in that passage, it's actually the church, and we know that it even becomes more clear by the time we, we get from chapter 16 to chapter 18. And so the keys of the kingdom of God, the authority of the kingdom, the right to act in the king's name is, is given to the church by the king. Now, the church consists of all the redeemed of all ages, which means Adam and Eve were part of the church. Sorry, dispensationalist. But something unique happened here at the establishment of the kingdom. Authority is, authority is given to the church. The keys to the kingdom are given to the church. It's not a government. It's not a pope. It's not an earthly ruler. It's the church. I heard it put this way. The church is like an embassy for the government of the king. It's an outpost of the kingdom of God surrounded, that's surrounded by the kingdom of darkness. And just like an embassy of a nation's meant to, to kind of showcase the life of the nation and represent a, an authority, you know, our, our, it's what our em, em, embassies do. They speak on behalf of the president in these other countries. We speak on behalf, as the church, we speak on behalf of our king. Now, think of the weight of that. We're speaking on behalf of our king, Jesus. The kingdom of God's everywhere. Everywhere God is working to draw people to himself, that's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God's all over the world. It's a global kingdom where the Holy Spirit is working globally. There's missionaries, there's Christians scattered everywhere, doing the work of the kingdom of God, redeeming people. And I heard one guy say it like this, the kingdom of God is 
the sovereign work in redemption, the church is the redeemed. And you can't separate the two, but they're not the same. And one of the key purposes of the church is to actually expand the kingdom, and God's chosen to use local churches like ours as the organizational structure for the work towards that goal. And as a church, we're part of the kingdom. Everything we do is part of the kingdom. But again, the church is not the kingdom. And and there's one really clear way to know this. It was in that last song. There is a day coming when every knee, not just the church, not just believers, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the King. All right? So that's the kingdom. Now, what is the kingdom of God? There's two definitions. I didn't, I didn't put them in the, in the slides. I'm just going to read them real quick. All right? They're slightly different, but a lot of overlap. The kingdom of God is the redemptive reign of God, dynamically active, to establish his rule among men. Here's another one. The kingdom of God is God's sovereign activity in the world where he's bringing people into a right relationship with himself. At the arrest of Jesus, after he rebuked Peter for drawing his sword and cutting off that soldier's ear and then putting the ear back on, if you hadn't seen that story, that's actually in the Gospels. Jesus is now arrested. He's standing before Pilate who's the Roman ruler in the area. And he asked Jesus a question. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds in verse 36. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate responds and says, so you are a king then. And Jesus says, you say that I'm a king. I was born for this. And I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus said to Pilate, oh, I'm a king. That's that's the whole reason I came. I was born for this. I've come into the world for this. So the Pharisees were hoping this, though. They were hoping that if Jesus would admit to being the king of the Jews, that the Romans would see him as a threat, and they would execute him, and then the Jews wouldn't have to get their hands dirty. The Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and those that were trying to get him killed. And so so Jesus said, I'm here as king, but not in the way the Pharisees claim I am, My kingdom's not of this world, it's a spiritual kingdom. So the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom, but that doesn't mean that it has no earthly impact or that there's nothing going on here on earth. I'll put it that way. It doesn't mean it only exists in the spiritual realm. So Jesus meant that his kingdom was a spiritual reality that manifests itself in the world in the hearts and lives of those who follow God. Christ, those who are part of the kingdom, Christians, allegiance to the king, and they're to go forth in the world doing the good works they've been called to do, which is in turn has a radical impact on the world for good, 
and evil has been killed. Christ won the victory over death, hell, and the grave as king. The kingdom of God is, is not of this world, but it's also, this, this is really important, it's also not a political kingdom. It isn't a kingdom where Jesus comes in and conquers with a sword. If he conquers it all with a sword, it's with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, which is the gospel, which is the only thing that changes the hearts of men and turns them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So you can think of it this way with the gospel. The gospel is the message of the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth through Jesus Christ, and the way to enter into the kingdom is through repentance and faith in Jesus as Savior and King. So the, the, the kingdom advances through the proclamation of the gospel, which is, in turn, advances light in the world. And so when we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, there is a both-and aspect to that prayer and to the kingdom. It's not just some far-off heavenly kingdom. It's actually having an impact on the world, a real, tangible, seeable impact. Now, when the disciples and others who followed Jesus, while he was on earth, they thought that he was going to come and set up a political, military kingdom, what we would consider an earthly monarchy. And for the religious leaders of the day, as well as the just average guys, the coming of the kingdom meant liberation of national Israel from its pagan oppressors who had been capturing them off and on for centuries, millennia. And the Jews of the Lord's day, in keeping with what they saw in the Old Testament, they expected the consummation of the kingdom to come from the Messiah at that moment and completely overthrow, at that particular time, it would have been Rome, the, Israel's political enemies, and then usher in this peace and prosperity for the rest of eternity. Jesus came with a message and said that before the kingdom's going to come in consummation, it's already come in the person and the work and the spirit and power of Jesus Christ. That's why he came. Turn to Luke 24. I want to show you this to you from Scripture. In Luke 24, the disciples are gathered. It's after the resurrection. They're all disappointed because not only is there no kingdom, Rome's still in power, and their king is dead. So they're struggling. They haven't seen Jesus yet, and he appears to them, and they flip out. They're scared. They should have been. And then they think they're seeing a spirit. And Jesus says, why are you frightened? I told you this was going to happen. And look in, in chapter, uh, verse 45 of Luke 24. This is what he says. He said, then he opened, his mind, opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, now this is not just the 12 he's speaking to here. Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you to stay in the city until you reclose the power from on high. And then he said in verse 50, and he led them out as far as Bethany, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now flip over to Acts 1. Same setting, same people, same time, same place, just a little bit different perspective on this, what's happening here. Acts 1 verse 3 
He presents himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them, pay attention, during 40 days and speaking to them about what? The kingdom of God. For 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus teaches this group of followers about the kingdom of God. And then verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, all right? And then verse 6 is important. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times of seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So one thing happens right here. We know that at some point, there will be a full consummation of the kingdom. Now, we happen to know now, because we have the rest of the New Testament, that that's in the future. That's, that's part of what Revelation's talking about there, especially in, in, the, in the last three chapters. Will you restore the kingdom? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. Uh, uh, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now pay close attention to verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up, taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him, Go into heaven. All right. So even at his ascension after the resurrection, they ask him, when are you going to restore the kingdom? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know. It's coming. Not now. But the kingdom's here. He said, guys, here's the issue. You are thinking too small. This isn't about Israel. You will be my witnesses in not Israel, not Jerusalem, not Judea, not just Samaria, the entire world. To every tribe and language and people, as I use you to call people into my kingdom. And in case you haven't read the rest of the book of Acts, spoiler alert, they eventually figure it out. And they did finally understand what Jesus was talking about. That the kingdom was spiritual, but that does not mean that they thought that all Jesus had done was come and give them some new moral code or new theology or improve their spirituality. What they believed was that the life, death, and resurrection of Christ had power, power to turn the entire cosmos from darkness to light. And it was exactly what they, it, it, it wasn't exactly what they imagined but one thing they were clear on was that the kingdom was here and that though it was spiritual, you can see the kingdom by the results of the gospel and what Christ is on the throne is ruling and reigning as king right now. You can see the kingdom as you see God working in the world to draw a people to himself to redeem them and then place them into the church. Now look, I've kind of beat the disciples up a little bit, but I don't want to be too hard on them because in 2023, we get caught up in the same ideas these guys get caught up in. We get pulled in debates about politics and culture and morality 
and that, that really have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. We get caught up in some things that people call good works that really aren't part of the kingdom of God. And some of y'all don't want to hear this, but you cannot bring about the kingdom of God through elections or education or humanitarian good works or environmental stewardship or eternal whatever non-spiritual means you lean towards, whatever your fancy. This is one area, Christians, we really need to get it right. Now, yes, kingdom values, we would hope those infiltrate our politics. Kingdom living should make a difference in our communities. Kingdom work will affect the things around us for the better as part of common grace. But don't misunderstand the nature of the kingdom. The kingdom doesn't advance when trees are planted or unemployment's lowered or somebody creates beautiful art or elections go our way or gas is reasonable. Those are important things, but they, they can reflect the values of the kingdom, but that's not what the kingdom's about. The kingdom comes... When and where the king is known. That's the kingdom. So, if you've been paying attention, you probably in the back of your mind have a question. The kingdom's here. It's great, and it's a great question. Thank you for asking. Um, if the kingdom is here, why is there still injustice in the world? And it really is a good question to ask good question to ponder, and a good question to have to consider from Scripture. Why is there still evil? If the kingdom of God's here, if Christ is ruling and reigning, if, why is there still evil in the world? I mean, I thought Jesus destroyed that on the cross. I thought death was conquered at the cross. I thought sin was conquered at the cross. I thought Jesus claimed victory over all that stuff. So I'm going to try and explain it this way, and I'm going to use an illustration. Not mine. Um, Think of it like this. One of the purposes, I say the key and first purpose of the law is to reveal to mankind the impossibility of reaching God on your own merit, on your own works. The gospel isn't what you do. The gospel is about what's been done in Christ. The good news is not about what you need to do. The good news is about what Jesus did for you. Once and for all, Hebrews tells us once and for all, he doesn't have to do it again, it's done. He did it for you because you couldn't do it for yourself. That's Jesus as Savior. And also as king, he conquered death, hell, and the grave, victory over those things. So why is there still evil in the world? It's a concept called already, not yet. Okay? And I know that sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth a little bit, but I'm not. Already, not yet. And you're familiar with this concept, and, and this is this illustration I was going to tell you about. I, I can't actually remember who I got it from, or I give him credit. So Jesus is called the great physician. Think of the cross as the cure for disease, and what is that disease? It's spiritual death. Those who are believers have been cured, and now we are called to give the cure to others and to promote the cure in a radical way. But... Think of it just with regular diseases. I mean, we just, you know, we've all been looking at this COVID thing now for three years, just a few weeks, March the 13th will be when they kicked us out of church. And um, 
And, and so, and shut down the schools and everything but the liquor stores and the, you know, and Lowe's. And um, I don't know if you tried to get in Lowe's those days. It was nuts. And so, think about it this way, all right? You promote the cure. The cure is out there, but not everybody's cured overnight. Even though the cure is here, those who are changed by the Gospels now become physicians who can give the cure to others but it's not a magic wand where everybody's cured all at one time. You give that to somebody, and there's a lot of people in the world, and there's more being born right this second. I, I think Matthew 13 will have explained it. Turn to Matthew 13. All right. So the disciples are asking about the kingdom in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verse 24, Jesus explained to them in a way that I think describes this already not yet concept. Awesome. Here's what he said. He put another parable before them and saying, the kingdom of heaven, now kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, same term. If you see that, they mean the same thing. Um, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did, did, did you not... Sow good seed in the field? How does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles and burn them. But gather the wheat into the barn. Now, right now as a church, as a body of believers, local church, now all local churches should be doing this, but as a local church, we are planting the seed of the gospel throughout the world. It's our call. It's the call of churches all over the world. It's why he put us here. It's why we put so much time and energy and money into things like discipleship and missions and service. And it's why we support missions efforts. And it's why we're working even more to try and help plant churches in, in Southern California and, we're, and to help expand the kingdom. Not simply because to plant churches, but because we want to sow good seed in these fields where the weeds are coming up. And right now, the good seed's growing. It's growing along beside the weeds. And I don't know if you've ever gardened, but sometimes the weeds look bigger than the plant. And we're in a moment right now in our history, at least in America, where the weeds look bigger than the plant. But I'm going to tell you something. The gospel is growing. You know how I know that? One-third, one-third of the world claims to be Christian. Protestant Christian. One-third. If you talk to the International Mission Board people who know what's going on in other countries, you will be amazed at the growth of the gospel outside of the West. I don't know what things will flip like in 50 years. I'll be dead, so it won't matter. I'll be with Jesus. We'll be, you know, he'll be, you know, I don't know what I'll be doing, but I won't be here, I can tell you that. If I am, somebody created like a crazy pill, all right? Uh, yeah, I'll yeah, be 100. Yeah, I don't, that ain't happening. So, uh, yeah, my people don't live that long. Um, and, uh, I don't know where I was headed with that. Um, <laughs> all right, so the good seed's growing. 
right? The not yet of the kingdom, you, you can see the now, but the not yet is actually at the end of the parable. Jesus said, let them grow together. Let them grow together. A harvest is coming, and Christ is the Lord of that harvest, and a day is coming where he is going to separate the wheat from the weeds. Sometimes it's called the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the chaff. And that the final judgment when Christ returns to consummate his reign as king in the new heavens and the new earth, the coming of the Messiah is twofold. He's coming as king, not the new Davidic king, the once and for all final king. And that's important because it explains the confusion the Jewish people were having in the Gospels. Hebrews tells us, this is what the writer of Hebrews was trying to tell the Jewish people. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of rightness is the scepter of your kingdom. We've got thrones and scepters and eternity all happening surrounding Christ as King. So the eternal King who came in meekness and humility to suffer and die as Savior also will come in power and glory and to judge and to reign as King. So God's kingdom would come first to men in a spiritual sense. The Savior King, meekness, he suffers and dies, defeats Satan, brings into God's kingdom a host of people who are redeemed for the kingdom. And then the kingdom will be manifested in power and glory. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praying that the gospel goes forth and continues to change the world. When we pray, thy kingdom come, and with Jesus we pray this, we are praying and acting on behalf of the King in the work of redemption in the world. And we're praying for the radical defeat and the uprooting of evil. And when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying for heaven and earth to finally one day be married at last and for God to be all in all, and for the day to come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But there's also one more thing we're praying for. This is the big one. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we're telling God, I'm willing to do what it takes. I'm willing to do what you need me to do as one of your subjects, as somebody with allegiance to the king, to serve you in whatever way you need me to serve you, to expand the kingdom of God. Don't take that lightly when you pray that prayer. When you pray it, mean it. We want to serve the king because our desire is for the kingdom. And so my prayer for us as a church today is that God make us the most amazing ambassadors for the kingdom that that we can become.